I saw an interesting article yesterday. Some prominent business leaders were told to pretend you can only ask your candidates a single interview question, one question, and base your entire hiring decision on it. Now, Barbara Corcoran, the Shark Tank famous real estate mogul, said this, tell me about your family. If their family couldn't give them a positive attitude, there's nothing I can do that's going to change it. Apple CEO Tim Cook doesn't do one question. A biography written about his leadership style recently describes how Cook would wear people down through an endless barrage of questions, not in the interview, but if you're an employee. Here's a quote from one of the people on one of his teams. He'll ask you 10 questions. If you answer them correctly, he'll ask you 10 more. If you do this for a year, he'll start asking you nine questions. Get one wrong, he'll ask you 20, and then 30. Okay. Now, in this final chapter of Daniel, after receiving this overwhelming vision, Daniel's going to ask a single question. And actually, it's going to involve his own family, uh, the people of Israel. He's not going to get the full answer he was hoping for, but we have the full answer. And that's a pretty remarkable thing to think about. Uh, One of the great reminders as you read the Word of God as a New Testament Christian in the church age, it's easy to you know, um, look up to these wonderful characters, especially in the Old Testament. Wow, what a life Daniel lived. Wow, like what an amazing testimony that he has and the things that he experienced and the things that he saw. And uh, we have it on good scriptural authority that Daniel would say to us, no, you guys are actually in the enviable position. You have the indwelling Holy Spirit living with you day after day. You have the completed revelation. And so just a good reminder of uh, just how privileged we are uh, as people in the church. And so let's get into our text and see what we see here. Verse 1, at that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. Pause right there. The time that's being referenced by this angel who's speaking to Daniel, the time is the time of the Antichrist's reign over the world and his merciless war against the Jewish people and believers in Jesus Christ during the second half of the tribulation. Uh, we were going through the, you know, this book verse by verse, and so uh, at the end of chapter 11, that's what we were led up to. We saw how Antichrist was going to make a treaty with Israel, and then he was eventually going to start warring against her. During this period of time, the last half of the tribulation, we are told here that Michael, the archangel, will take action in the heavenly realm. Michael is mentioned in just three books of the Bible, Daniel, Jude, and Revelation, but we actually know a a good little amount about him. He's called an archangel, which is a particularly strong class of heavenly being. In Revelation chapter 12, it seems that he is at least rank-wise sort of on par with Satan in strength and position in that he leads the army of heaven just as Satan leads his army of angels, as if they're each a general of the similar rank. Here in Daniel 12, we learn that he has a special assignment to watch over the nation of Israel. Now, we've seen before in the book of Daniel that there are apparently angels and demons assigned to different geographic locations or people groups. We talked about this in previous chapters, the prince of Persia and your prince and all that sort of thing. We've seen that before. And looking at Matthew 18, verse 10, it suggests that angels may also have personal assignment to individuals. In our text, we would note that the very strongest of angels is given to guard over Israel. The Jews really are God's special chosen people. 
He has not abandoned them. He has not forgotten them. He has not replaced them. Uh, The text doesn't say, well, in those days at the end of human history here on the earth, uh, the angel Michael is going to stand up for the folks who have replaced the Jews. No, he says he's going to stand up for your people, Daniel, the Israel Uh, the Israelites, Jewish people, uh, real, actual Jewish people. And so uh, he has not abandoned Israel. God has not forgotten them. And before you feel jealous about Michael being assigned to Israel, we remember that Paul wrote in 2 Thessalonians 3, and he said this, the Lord is faithful who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. And so for the church, our bridegroom watches over us, and so we are by no means being shortchanged. It's not like we in the church have the angel from It's a Wonderful Life. Remember that guy? It's probably not the angel you want watching over you, right? Now the bridegroom is watching over his church, and so we're not being shortchanged in any way here. Verse 1 continues, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. And at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. For those who suggest that Daniel and Revelation are fulfilled already, either by Antiochus Epiphanes uh, here in this uh, period uh, that we've been talking about for a number of weeks, or that it's already been fulfilled in the 70 AD destruction of Jerusalem by Titus and the Roman legion, well, this verse becomes a problem. Because even though both of those periods under Antiochus Epiphanes, who we spent a lot of time talking about, and then later, uh, you know, future to Jesus, the AD 70 destruction of Jerusalem, both of those periods were very tragic for the Jews, but they certainly can't be described as more terrible than anything that had happened since there ever was a nation. And then add to the fact that Jesus talked about this same period of time that Daniel is writing about in this vision. And here's what Jesus said about this time. He said, there will be great tribulation, such has not been since the beginning of the world until this time. Okay, that tracks. And then Jesus adds, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. And so that's the descriptor of the period of time being discussed both in the Olivet Discourse and here in Daniel 10, 11, and 12, talking about the Great Tribulation. Far, far, far beyond anything that has happened in human history uh, and anything that ever will happen in human history up until that point. The Bible's clear on that. And so it's, it's clear that these things that we've been reading about the last few weeks, they have not yet occurred historically. Charles Feinberg writes this, The best way to test whether Daniel's prophecy has been fulfilled already is to ask yourselves whether Israel has been delivered from her enemies. It was not true in the time of Nebuchadnezzar. It was not true in the time of Titus. It is still not true in our present hour. And he wrote that a good number of decades ago, but it's still the same today. Israel is not delivered from her enemies. She's beset by enemies, surrounded by them. We also note here that Just because the nation of Israel will be delivered, that does not mean that every single Jewish person will be saved in the end. Deliverance on the individual level is still determined by who is written in the Lamb's book of life. Verse 2 brings that out. Look at verse 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Now, there are systems of theology uh, that brothers and sisters of ours adhere to or teach, but different systems of theology, that there is just one general resurrection all at once at the end of human history. 
And typically that position is held by uh, churches or teachers who don't believe in a literal tribulation or a literal millennial kingdom on the earth. Now, here at Calvary, as premillennialist, pre-tribulationist, we identify two resurrections in the Bible. Revelation calls them the first resurrection and the second. You find that in Revelation chapter 20. Now, the first resurrection is the resurrection of the righteous. But we also find in the Bible that that resurrection, the first resurrection, does not happen at one single point in time. As we read the scriptures, we see it taking place in stages. Now, if someone balks at that idea, you can point out right away that, look, every Christian believes this at some level because every Christian believes that Jesus is already risen from the dead, right? There's no Christian system of theology or Christian church out there that is teaching, well, Jesus is going to rise again from the dead at the general resurrection, right? So everybody from every sort of systematic theology says, well, Jesus has risen from the dead. So by nature, the resurrection isn't all at once, right? And so as we read the scriptures, we see that the first resurrection, what Revelation 20 calls the first resurrection, the resurrection of the righteous takes place in stages. And so uh, we find three stages to the first resurrection. And then we find one stage for the second resurrection. So let's talk through this a little bit. When Jesus rose from the dead on Easter morning, the Bible says he became the first fruits of the resurrection. The Bible says it outright. He was the first fruits of the resurrection. And then as we read the Bible and passages like Thessalonians and 1 Corinthians and other parts of the Bible, we find the rapture of the church. And there at the rapture of the church, all of the believers who have died between Pentecost and the rapture, what we call the church age, they will be raised to life. That's stage two of the first resurrection. And then after the second coming of Christ, at the end of the tribulation, all of the Old Testament believers and all of the believers who died during the tribulation will be raised. And that's what we see in Revelation 20, and that's what we're seeing here in Daniel 12. That's the third phase. And then we see that there is yet another resurrection discussed in the book of the Revelation. After the 1,000-year reign of Jesus on the earth, we have the second resurrection. Now, the second resurrection, you don't want to have any part of that. Okay, because the second resurrection is for all of the unbelieving dead from all ages of human history, from Cain all the way through the millennium. And they will be raised and then sent to the great white throne judgment. No one comes out of the great white throne judgment in a good position. Everybody there is, is going to be uh, sent to hell. They're judged at the great white throne judgment. And you, if you're standing before the great white throne, you are not saved, okay? So these are the resurrections that we see discussed in the Bible. The Bible calls it the first resurrection, the resurrection of the saved, and the second resurrection, the resurrection of the unsaved. And the first resurrection clearly happens in stages. We identify three, the resurrection of Christ, then the resurrection of the church age believers, and then the resurrection of Old Testament and tribulation believers. Now, Sometimes people take issue with the position that this first resurrection happens over three stages. I understand. However, it is interesting to learn that in Jewish society, the harvest had three stages. They were first fruits, and then the larger harvest of the main crop, and then the third phrase, third phase, excuse me, called the gleanings. Remember when Ruth went in? 
you know, behind the, the uh, harvesters, and she was getting the gleanings, right? It was another phase of the harvest. The stuff gathered up at the end, it's called. And so it really is a great type and a picture of God's plan for the resurrection. And so the Bible simply, as you read through this, as we do as literal futurists who are reading Bible prophecy saying, okay, these things have to correspond to real actual events, just like they did in the Old Testament, just like they did when discussing Jesus Christ's first coming, then we identify that there isn't just one big resurrection where everybody from all eras come up out of the grave at once. And for those who do feel that way, again, they don't actually feel that way because if that was really true, then Jesus still has to be in the grave, right? But our Lord is risen, he's risen indeed, and so that's what we're seeing. Daniel 12 verse three says this, those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. God values, rewards, and commands that we share his good news of salvation with the world. Proverbs 11.30 says, he who wins souls is wise. You know, we are sent to go out and labor in the harvest and to bring back spiritual returns on the Lord's investment. That's an exciting thought, but it also can be a very sobering thought. What can I do to be like the industrious servants who made good on the talents that the master gave them? rather than being like that one servant who simply buried those coins in the ground. And what happened? He deservedly brought the master's anger uh, upon himself. And so it's super exciting to realize that the Lord has entrusted us as his people to go out and do his work, to be uh, emissaries for him and ambassadors for him, and to go out and help rescue people out of sin and out of death and out of hell. But then we are reminded often, often, often in the scripture that, yeah, that's not just an opportunity, that is our job, that is a command, we are sent to do it. Those are our orders. And so uh, we need to be reminding ourselves of that. Verse four, but you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. There are a lot of ideas tucked away in the two halves of this verse, let's take the first and talk about Daniel sealing up the book for a minute. Some scholars feel the word means that the book of Daniel will be sealed in the sense that it is secured and kept intact. Seal it up so that nothing happens to it, so that it can be delivered throughout the generations. And that certainly has been the case. The Lord has been so faithful to preserve his word and to deliver it all over the world. Uh, that is a wonderful thing. All the words of his prophecies we've seen have been true and reliable. You don't get to like, oh, Daniel 13 through 14, man, he really missed it on that. You know, these things have been true and reliable. They have been secure and accurate. Uh, and so in that sense, his word, uh, the, these, the words of his book have been secured. They've been kept intact. Absolutely. Now, other scholars feel that the book was sealed in such a way that its full meaning was kept concealed until the time of the end. And that seems to fit well with the context, especially of what we're going to read later in verses eight and following, where Daniel says, hey, wait, I need some clarity here. And they say, no, don't worry about it. You're not going to get the clarity you're looking for. That's for the people at the end. And so uh, you don't have to pick one interpretation over the other. Um, they both uh, have their place. 
But from where Daniel stood, there were many, many things on God's prophetic to-do list before you could even start thinking about the tribulation and the second coming. And we've seen that. In his other visions, we've seen how, yeah, there's going to be succession of kingdoms, and this is going to happen, and that's going to happen, and this guy's going to raise up, and then that guy's going to raise up. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of years. And Daniel was realizing that, oh, the kingdom of God is not going to be established imminently. We've got a long period of time, right? From his vantage point, there was a lot the Lord was going to accomplish from Daniel's vantage point. The Messiah hadn't even come the first time yet. But now we, as readers of Scripture, are in a much different position. The only item left on God's prophetic calendar before the tribulation is the rapture of the church. Peter and Paul both talked about how we are in the last days. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2 says that in these last days, God has spoken to us by his son. And so now as we look at Daniel, we may, we may not understand everything perfectly. Certainly, we're not suggesting we understand everything perfectly, but we can look back through history. We can harmonize the visions of Daniel with the rest of Bible prophecy and in light of the New Testament, and we can get a pretty clear handle on what is being said in a way that really was sealed shut for uh, previous centuries, right? Right? where people were sitting there thinking, what's going on? But we can look back and say, look at how Daniel 11, how 135 things were all precisely fulfilled, and we can point to it. There it is, 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 there it is. And then we can harmonize what Daniel has said with what the Revelation has said and with what all of these other passages have said, and all of a sudden, it all starts coming together in a wonderful way. And now, we are in the end times according to the New Testament, and it says, okay, this is sealed up until the time of the end. That's a pretty exciting thing because we are getting the kind of understanding that Daniel and his companions and that other faithful Jews wanted but simply were unable to have. Now, the second half of the verse there also has that phrase, many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. Like everything else in the book, scholars debate the exact meaning and context of this uh, phrase as well. Some point to the book of Amos in chapter 8, where it uses similar words to describe people seeking the word of the Lord. It says, hey, people are run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord. And in this way of thinking, the interpretation of Daniel 12, 4, is that in the end times, people will be scouring prophecy, specifically Daniel's prophecy, trying to find understanding and answers. And as many people run to and fro over God's word, as it were, their knowledge of spiritual things will increase. And there's nothing wrong with that interpretation. And clearly, there is much greater attention and emphasis being given to Bible prophecy now than ever has been before, in, not just in the history of the church, but I mean by the wider world as well. We're fond of talking about here how you, know, you can turn on the History Channel, you can turn on the Discovery Channel, especially during times like Easter, and you see these secular people who, who have no faith in Jesus Christ, but they want to talk about these prophecies. They want to talk about these things that the Bible is bringing up. That wasn't happening in the same way 100 years ago, 200 years ago, even 50 years ago. We do see a great increase in the discussion of prophecy and in the interest in prophecy. Sadly, we also see in the wider American church a disinterest in prophecy. We've like got it backwards. Now, is, there's a trend in some churches to say, hey, we don't really need to talk about prophecy. Nobody knows any of this stuff, and so let's just kind of look the other way on it. 
And uh, in the meantime, out in the world, and we see people running to and fro over Bible prophecies to try to find answers and answers that we have, answers that we know, and we don't want to neglect uh, preaching those answers. But others suggest that the, this half of the verse is also giving us a marker to look out for, signs of the times. You know, the Bible is big into us watching the prophetic weather, as it were. Jesus said this is something he wants us to do. He says, hey, watch for the signs of the times. Take a look out there. And he would talk about how, you know, you look into the sky to predict the weather and you look at the crops and you see, okay, here's what's gonna happen and here's what's not gonna happen. He says, you need to be doing this when it comes to prophetic things as well. And so if that's the case, in that sort of interpretation of this phrase, running to and fro, knowledge shall increase, it's easy to see that people move about the earth much more quickly and easily than ever before. Uh, As of 2014, there were over 100,000 air flights per day, 100,000 every single day. And that's a big deal. Except for then you realize that these days we are regularly hearing talk on the news and uh, in technology and all those sorts of things of manned voyages to Mars, right? And we're hearing people talk about suborbital flights. They're talking about going from London to Sydney in less than an hour, from London, England to Sydney, Australia in an hour. And I was looking at an article about this. They say, hey, this isn't science fiction. They said, this is coming. It's going to start off super expensive and, you know, it's going to be hard to do, but it's not, it's not fiction anymore. This is going to be a reality because they have these craft that can hop out of the atmosphere and then drop back down. This is amazing. When you think about people like Jesus walking everywhere, people like Paul getting on a boat and sailing across just the Mediterranean Sea, and he can barely get there without shipwrecking, right? And I always thought, you know, it's just crazy that you can just get on an airplane, and a few hours later, you're on a different continent, you're in a different hemisphere, and especially now when we're talking about, what are they talking about? They're talking about the Hyperloop. Yeah, you can get from San Francisco to Los Angeles on a Hyperloop in 20 minutes, theoretically, They're talking about these suborbital flights. They're talking about manned, you know, trips to Mars and all of these things. I would call that running to and fro as a marker of, huh, something is different in this era than ever has been in the history of mankind. All sorts of fantastic developments in travel. But what about knowledge increasing? Well, that's happening too at an astounding degree. Now, I may not get much smarter, right? The hard drive of my brain you know, do you know that like your hard drive eventually wears out and kind of burns up a little bit? You know, that's, that happens. But, you know, they talk about the collection of accumulated data on the planet, right? Things like how big is the internet? How much information do we store? How much information can we transmit? Accumulated data. It is growing at an exponential rate, a silly rate of speed. This is something that has been studied for a while now. It's centered mostly on what is called the knowledge doubling curve. It started back in the 80s. They said they wanted to study how long does it take for all of the accumulated and transmitted human knowledge to double, right? In the year 1750, it took 250 years for the amount of accumulated data and transmitted data to double, okay? By the year 1900, it was 100 or 150 years. They said, okay, every 100 years or so, 
humanity is doubling the amount of information they are storing and transmitting, okay? By the end of 1945, it was every 25 years. As of today, researchers suggest that the amount of accumulated and transmitted knowledge is doubling every 12 hours. Every 12 hours. That's how much information is being transmitted, is being stored, is growing and growing and growing. Things like the internet and published works and all that kind of stuff. Every 12 hours, it's doubling. That is astounding. So look, if we're looking for markers along God's prophetic road where he says, hey, watch for the signs of the times. And one of those signs are going to be people running over prophecy looking for answers. And people are going to be moving about the earth. And people and knowledge is going to be increasing both in prophecy and we could say lots of good scholars say, hey, it's just knowledge, human knowledge is going to be increasing. I mean, we, these things are really prominent. There's nothing like this in the rest of human history. You understand that from the time of Daniel, and obviously beforehand, but from the time of Daniel to the turn of the 20th century, everybody rode a horse, right? And now we're talking about suborbital flights, Sydney to London in an hour. If that's not a, a marker, I don't know what is. Verse five, and then I, Daniel, looked and there stood two others and one on this riverbank and the other on that riverbank. And one said to the man clothed in linen who is above the waters of the river, how long shall the fulfillment of these wonders be? And then I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river when he held up his right hand and his left hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it shall be for a time, times, and half a time. And when the power of the holy people has been completely shattered, all these things shall be finished. You know, I appreciate, and it doesn't just happen here, but I appreciate in scenes like this where God's people are receiving these incredible visions, angels frequently will ask questions on our behalf for our benefit. Something gives me the sneaking suspicion the angels knew the answer to this question. He said, hey, let's ask this out loud for the benefit of the prophet and for the readers. And you know, to me, that is a gentle reminder that God's word really does speak to those questions that you have in your heart right now. It may be an ancient book, but it is a living book. It is alive and it is powerful. And it speaks to your real everyday life today. Those questions that you have nagging in your heart about uh, different things about the Lord or struggles that you're facing or, or hurts that you hold or things that you're concerned about, those questions that you have, there are answers delivered for you in God's word. We don't need to be afraid to ask God's question, to, to go to him and say, hey, what is going on in my life right now and what should I do about it? We can trust him to answer and to direct us. He loves to answer. He, he goes to great lengths to provide answers for our daily living. Here in verse seven, we're given that formula again that we've seen before. All of these great trials for Daniel's people would be for a time, times, and half a time. And we've learned this already before in previous weeks. This refers to a period of three and a half years, the last three and a half years of human history before the establishment of Christ's millennial kingdom. We're told in this passage that those years will be characterized by the crushing and shattering of God's people. And we learn a lot about that in the Revelation. Luckily, Jesus gives us more insight in the Olivet Discourse, promising that this time will not just be characterized by their crushing, but it will be capped off by the second coming where God rescues and makes right all that's gone wrong in this world. Now, the answer giving, given in these verses, right? He says, hey, how long? Well, it's going to be 
when all of the holy people are being crushed. That's a real problem for the post-millennial view of the end times. The post-millennial view in that view, basically it says, well, the church will go through the world and the world will become more and more Christian. And then effectively when the kingdom is ready to be received, then it will culminate in Jesus Christ coming back to earth and receiving the kingdom that we've kind of made ready for him. But that's the opposite of what we're reading here. Where it says, actually, Jesus is going to come back at the moment where it seems like all of his people are going to be shattered and crushed, all of their power broken. Verse 8, although I heard, I did not understand. And then I said, my Lord, what shall be the end of these things? We've seen from previous passages in Daniel that he knew God would establish a never-ending dominion on the earth. And Daniel knew that God's people would receive that kingdom and rule with the Lord. But from Daniel's vantage point, from what he was seeing and what he was hearing, he simply couldn't understand the whole picture of God's plan. And he's somewhat overwhelmed by it here. He says, hey, how is this all going to turn out? And what a privilege, really, it is for us to have the whole completed revelation of Scripture at our fingertips where we can say, yeah, we could, in a sense, stand into Daniel and say, I can help you. Sure, Charlie Brown, I can tell you what the end times are all about, Right? And, and so it is a precious, precious thing that we have at our fingertips, the full, completed revelation of God. Verse 9, and he said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. Many shall be purified, made white and refined, but the wicked shall do wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. Daniel wasn't going to get more of an explanation Once again, he's told the book would be sealed to him and to others until the time of the end. Now, we sit up with anticipation when we read this verse in comparison to what John wrote almost 700 years later. An angel said to John in the book of the Revelation, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is at hand. Very important. You know, commentators will often talk about how Revelation is an important companion book to Daniel. Of course, it is, but it's much more than that. In a sense, Revelation is like a decoder ring. Uh, It's the cipher to the previously sealed prophecies found throughout the Bible, especially the Old Testament. You know, if you've come to Calvary for an extended period amount of time, especially when we've taught through Revelation, you know that there are at least 500 references from the Old Testament in the book of the Revelation. Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum writes this, quote, the value of the book of the Revelation is not that it provides a lot of new information, though it does, but rather that it takes the scattered Old Testament prophecies and puts them in a chronological order so that the sequence of events may be determined. This book provides a framework for the understanding of the order and the sequence of events found in the Old Testament prophecies, end quote. Now, of course, Revelation does provide new material as well, but as a book, it is the key that unlocks the seals of the passages like Daniel that we're reading here. Ezekiel, Zechariah, others. Revelation is the key that opens that up and shows us here's what's happening and here's how it lines up. And so to discount the book of the Revelation, to dismiss it as unintelligible or strange or unimportant is to simply walk past a vast treasure trove of knowledge and wisdom and teaching and blessing from the Lord and it's unacceptable for us to do so. Don't walk past the book of the Revelation and say, eh, who can know it? The book specifically says that we can know it. 
and that we'll be blessed for reading it. Daniel was desperate to understand prophecy here. We should be too, especially since we have so much more to work with, such greater understanding and clarity. Verse 11, and from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away and the abomination of desolation is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and comes to the 1,335 days. So like one last little prophetic tease here at the very end of the book. What does this mean? What are you talking about? The Bible is very specific about the timing of the Great Tribulation. We've talked at length about time, times, half a time, three and a half years. It's also called 42 months. In Revelation 11 and 12, it's described as 1,260 days. God is belaboring the literalness of this time period. But then here we have two other similar but different lengths. First, there's 1,290 days, and then ultimately 1,335 days. While we can't be absolutely certain how all of this is going to work out, there are some things we do know. We know that after the second coming, the kingdom will be established, right? And this text indicates that there will be a transition period between the second coming and the opening of the kingdom. And that makes sense because there's some things that the Lord needs to do before the kingdom is open. Uh, There seems to be a transition period, a total of 75 days in between Jesus Christ returning and the establishment of the kingdom. What's going to be going on during that time? Well, we know from Ezekiel 20, verses 33 through 44, that the people of Israel are going to be examined by the Lord, their shepherd. They're going to pass under his rod like a flock of sheep. The rebels who did not believe will be purged, and those who did believe will be brought into the bond of the covenant, we're told. We also know from the Olivet Discourse that angels will be sent to gather the elect from one end of heaven to the other. And we know that Jesus will preside over the sheep and goats judgment to determine which Gentiles enter the kingdom and which will not. And so there's stuff to do. And it would seem that all this is going to take about 75 days. I'm not sure what we'll be doing during this time, probably participating in some way. I mean, we return with Jesus and we'll be in our glorified bodies. We're promised that we will be ruling and reigning with the Lord. It says, hey, you're going to judge angels, those sorts of things. So I I can't imagine we're not going to be doing anything. I think we're going to be busy. But finally, 1,335 days after the Antichrist sets up his abomination, which makes desolate, the kingdom will be established. Verse 13, the book ends, but you go your way till the end, for you shall rest and will arise to your inheritance at the end of the days. Daniel is told again to go and rest, despite the questions that he had. And then the book's suddenly over. It's just over. I I don't know. I just found that abrupt and kind of crazy. It's just over. He doesn't say, and so I went home. It doesn't say, and then the vision ended, or then the man disappeared. It just, that's just it. No epilogue. No, Daniel lived long and happy years. No, verse 13 sends Daniel. He says, hey, Daniel, go. And then he just sets his pen down. He's like, all right, I'm done then. I don't know. I just thought that was amazing. But notice the close here. Daniel is sent to live out his life in the hope of the resurrection, right? That's how his story ends. This great man of faith, this great man used by God. Your story ends. You're going to hope for the resurrection, Daniel. And that's how the great book of prophecy in the Old Testament concludes. He looks forward to his own resurrection and inheritance. Well, how does our great New Testament prophecy book end? The revelation closes for us with a somewhat different hope. It says, even so, come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. And so we live out the rest of our lives in the hope of the rapture, the coming of the Lord. 
And as we go, we can go in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We may have questions. Some of those questions may be answered. Some of them may not be answered. We may face temptations like Daniel did, struggles like Daniel did, disappointments, lions and fires and tyrants and all sorts of things. But we know the end. We know that Jesus is coming. It could be today. There's nothing that has to take place before the Lord can come for his church. We know that the Lord is coming quickly. And in the meantime, we can rest in his victory and busy ourselves with seeking his wisdom, seeking his kingdom, seeking his righteousness and turning others to righteousness which doesn't mean turning them towards acts of goodness. No, we're told in the New Testament that Jesus Christ is our righteousness. And we are sent out with the grace of Jesus to turn people to our Lord and to be busy about his business, waiting for his coming, his quick coming. Amen?